I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but there is no time in history like the time in history that you find yourself in, in that you have more access to knowledge than anyone has ever had, ever. Uh, it's practically limitless. What you can find, research, seek, and the problem is, we discover, is that with access to all of that, how could we possibly appropriate even a fraction of it? And for some of us, it's just sort of wonderful. We, it's like walking with wide-eyed, look, look at all the possibilities, and that at some point you go, there's just too much. And you feel overwhelmed by it, and it's almost a depressing thing. There's just so much to know, and I'll never know it. What if there was a way to appropriate more of it such that it really became knowledge for you? Well, that actually happens to be the plot line of a film called Limitless, and you took a pill, and you're able to take in everything and really assimilate it. Well, here's a hot take on what that might look like. A tablet a day, and what I could do with my day was limitless. I learned to play the piano in three days. Math became useful and fun. I'm all in. Even half listening to any language, I became fluent. I've been doing a little research on Anne Helen's tumor, and it's totally clear that anybody with familial abdominis pallidosis should be supplementing platinum-based doublet regimens with eicosampentaoic acid. I suddenly knew everything about everything. Sure, you get a short-term spike, but wouldn't that rapid expansion devalue just not completely in two years? No, because there are safeguards. Against aggressive overexpansion? There aren't, because there are no safeguards in human nature. And we're wired to overreach. My brain was just pouring this stuff out. Everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Here it is, here you go. All my fear, all my shyness, gone. I wasn't moving forward, I felt like I was going to explode. Anybody ever jump? Are you crazy? Oh my god! And then I began to form an idea. Suddenly, I knew exactly what I needed to do. It wasn't writing. It wasn't books. It was much bigger than that. And as I'm told, the way the narrative arc unfolds, even with all that knowledge, even with that capacity to appropriate all of it and even to implement it, he recognizes that there has to be something more than to just know all of these facts and be able to impress people with his knowledge. There's something more than just being able to appropriate the information. And I agree. And I think you do too. And guess who does also? The Apostle Paul. It is one thing to know a lot. It is quite something else to be able to do and act appropriately with what you have. And that thing is what we call wisdom. And it's hard-earned. <clears throat> and it's full of pain. And there's something about it that you can't quite measure. 
We've been listening to a letter for a very long while. And one word that keeps coming up in Paul's language in this letter to some of these fledgling churches is the idea of walking. And for him, to walk is a metaphor to live. The way you walk is how you live. And so we've heard him say about walking worthily of the calling to which you've been called. We hear him say about walking in love. Last week we heard what he meant by walking in light. Well, this morning he's going to round out that metaphor of what it means to walk by talking about what does it mean to walk in wisdom, with wisdom. Because we all need it, and a walk without it is no walk at all. I'd like to argue that where he's coming from in this letter, that walking in wisdom rests on two pillars, two heads. And those two ideas are words, characteristics that in some ways have a very modern feel to them. Two words that you've probably heard at school or at work or online or whatever it might be. Two words, mindfulness and spirituality. Kids, anybody of you go to a school or people who are in workplaces, do any of you as a workplace offering practice, the practice of mindfulness ever? Any, anybody have heard of that? I'm looking. Uh, tough crowd. There's a few of you. Yes. Okay. It's a thing. We'll talk about it. And then spirituality. Boy, that's still a thing. Even in our quote-unquote increasingly secular world where the idea of religion and spirituality is pushed to the margins. Ha. Ha. Now the religion part, thanks but no. Spirituality in like Flynn. Paul would agree that a life of wisdom is full of mindfulness and spirituality, but he's going to define those terms in very similar but very distinct ways, and we want to talk about what he means by it, even as we set it in context about what the world means by it. That's the world. What does it mean to walk in wisdom? What does it mean to have a mindful, spiritual life that offers you that walk in wisdom? That's our burden. And we're going to listen to Paul for what he means by that. So if you will, I wonder if you could stand. We're in chapter 5 still. We'll start in verse 15. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore... Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So I saw a few hands out there about anybody that practices this thing called mindfulness. <clears throat> and just to, just to set it up for you what that is, it's, I'm not an expert in it. It is borrowing a lot from Eastern philosophical and faith traditions. It is this idea of a focused attention, a disciplined attention on the present, the fullness of what the present can offer you. It is an attempt to screen out the past, 
put the future at bay and just focus intensely on everything you can notice about the present moment. To just sit there and and try to focus on it entirely without letting any other thoughts come into your head. That's a form of mindfulness. Now, I'm not here to trivialize it or to pretend that I'm an expert in it, but if I could give you just sort of a thing that rings to my bell, rings my bell about what mindfulness is, so there's Yoda, right? Yoda meets Luke. Yoda meets the ghost of Ben Kenobi. And as Luke is trying to petition for Yoda to become the master, his, you know, his teacher, Yoda says to Ben, his mind always on the future, never his mind on where he is, right? And then later, thank you, and then later, when the training unfolds, he says, clear your mind of questions, right? That's, that is mindfulness, with no disrespect to anybody that knows a lot more about mindfulness than I do. It is the ability, it is the capacity just to sit here with the moment, don't let anything else invade. It's mindfulness. And it, it's not in the film. If you think it is not a thing, you're wrong. It is used in mental health situations. It is helping in pain management situations. It is used in family therapy situations. It's a thing. That's mindfulness as it's understood now. But what does it mean to be mindful from a Christian point of view? Paul would agree. There is the life of wisdom is an act of being mindful, but in a particular way. What is that? It's what he says there in verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. You as you are, life as it is, God as God is, there is no such thing as wisdom that comes easily or naturally. And the only way it comes to you is by a focused attention, not just on your present, but on the whole way of reality. Unless you're thinking about your life, unless you're thinking about life in the context of all things, you will never find a life of wisdom. And that is not a novel idea. Because like 400 years before Paul ever puts that on, you know, from stylus to papyrus, I like that rhyme. There was this dude named Socrates. If you're under the age of 40, you know him as Socrates. And I do too. Socrates famously said after his trial, I drank what? No, he didn't. Thank you for getting that. Socrates at his trial, he was on trial for exposing youth to dangerous ideas he said, the unexamined life is not worth living. If you are just coasting, always looking at everything else and never taking an internal inventory of the way things are and the way you are, you have set yourself up for a life devoid of wisdom. Paul's going there. Socrates is going there. But what does it mean to be mindful in a particularly Christian way? I'm going to tell you. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. It doesn't begin with about thinking about your life. It doesn't begin with even thinking about your present. As helpful as those things are and as necessary as they become. Do you know where it starts? Mindfulness from a Christian point of view starts with thinking about the life of Jesus. If it doesn't start there, you have a recipe for either compulsion or disaster. You have to think about his life first. 
You have to think about his past, his present, his future. You have to think about the life that he lived and what he did and what he accomplished and how that changes everything about how you think about your past, your present, your future. It changes everything about how you think about your life. To think about his life and his grace to you is what we talked about in the whole first half front of the from the letter. It's to think about the song of the gospel, what he's done for you that had nothing to do with you, that had nothing to do with what you deserved. It is everything about what he did for you. You don't start there. You can't think about your life, and you shouldn't. That's why Paul talked about Jesus first. Christian mindful wisdom starts with thinking about his life. If you don't start there, look, The, the word that Paul likes is the word walk. That's a metaphor for life. And the word that we've kind of borrowed, we've kind of changed this metaphor a little bit, we've said that the life, the walk, is really a dance. And what is a dance? But being prompted to move on the basis of a song that has captivated your attention. The song of the gospel is the life of Jesus that you think about first. And if you don't start there, you have no business thinking about your life or even your present and certainly not your past or your future. It starts there. It doesn't stay there. A life of mindfulness in Jesus starts with thinking about his life, but then it has to go somewhere, and that's where Paul goes next. And it really is, mindfulness kind of breaks down into two directions. It's to think about a nature of time. And when you think about Jesus with respect to you, with respect to time, here's the truth. You were loved before time, you were forgiven in all time, and you are welcomed for all time because of him. That's the gospel. You were loved before time, you were forgiven in time, and because of him, you'll be welcomed for all time. You have to start there. And when it comes down to time... This is what Paul says there in 16 and 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise as unwise. How so? Making the best use of time because the days are evil. Pregnant, pithy, poignant word. What does he mean? You know what? I would like help to unpack that idea by inviting one of our family up here to talk. His name is Jim. You may have seen him before. And last week, I began that sermon talking about the story of Dostoevsky, who uh, at the age of 27 was marched out for what he thought would be his own execution. And then they stripped the blindfold off and said, surprise, your sentence has been commuted, all to act cruelly toward him. And his life was forever changed, having that near brush with death. Jim has not had an identical experience but he's had a recent experience that I asked him to consider prayerfully whether he would share some of that with you. And he, in his courage and his humility, said, I think I would like to help. So this is Jim. If you don't know him, you should get to know him. But Jim had news a little over a year ago. And what was that news? Uh, A little over a year ago, I uh, was having a problem with hoarseness. My throat went to the doctor. He said, you have a paralyzed vocal cord. Uh, Furthermore, you have stage four uh, metastatic lung cancer. 
terminal. If, uh, if this medicine does not cure you, you have two to five months. And the therapy you began, and it's been a year since then, and what did your most recent scan tell you? Uh, very thankfully, uh, through the gift of God's grace and the prayers of the people in the community here, and a very humble doctor, uh, my scan was clear again. Uh, all of the cancer that was uh, probably in 10 or 15 places in my body pushed back. And I know that you, you're an old soul, and so you appreciate things like Pac-Man. So uh, I think of my uh, cancer like the Pac-Man and God's prayers and the medicine doing this. So it's still trying, but it can't get through. And by God's grace, we don't know how long that'll be. It could be six months, it could be three years, it could be five years. It just depends on how long the body uh, will put up with it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Um, I'll, I'll, get, I'll, I'll be one of those people that asks stupid questions in the middle of moments of great terror. Uh, so, like, well, what did you feel <laughs> in that moment when you got that diagnosis? What were your feelings? What were your thoughts as you can recall them from that time? I guess you'd say numbness. Uh, nobody ever expects that a sore throat or a horse throat leads to terminal cancer. Um, but at the same time, um, I've been really surrounded by people who have cared for me deeply. Uh, my wife is a, this is kind of an oxymoron or ironic, my wife is a retired lung doctor. And uh, she wasn't real happy when she heard the news because in her 25 years of practice, she'd never seen anyone live more than eight months with uh, what I had. And she has been my rock. Our daughter has been our rock. People here in this congregation have been my rock. My best friend, as soon as I told him the news, he, he said, uh, I'm, I'm on my way. And he jumped in the car. I said, no. He said, I'm coming. 300 miles later, he came just to give me a hug. And then the body of Christ here, people have done just incredible things to show me uh, his love. Uh, probably the greatest one I can remember is somebody in the congregation. We have a lot of gifted musicians here. Somebody said, I would like to come and do a private violin concert for you. And so they came to our living room and did this for, for me. And it just reminded me of the love of Christ and how much I need this body, how much this body needs each other. So you've answered my other question then is, is that uh, if any of us were in a similar situation, we would be hard pressed not to climb into the fetal position and remain in the paralyzed state intractably. And what else would you say contributed to your ability to stand up and stare into that headwind? Well, you know, as believers, we say we believe in heaven. And that's an easy thing to say you believe in until you're confronted with your mortality. Um, and my wife, I think, put it best because somebody asked her, well, how are you dealing with this? And she said, well, I'm kind of torn because on the one hand, I kind of like this guy. I'd like for him to be around for a while. But on the other hand, if we're believers and we believe heaven is better, then I can't pray against that. And I think that's very profound. Uh, do I really believe that heaven is my home? Do I really believe that uh, that is a better place? But at the same time, like Paul said, I'm torn. He said, I'm torn. I, I want to be with Christ, which is better by far, but I will, I'll remain with you for your progress and joy in the faith. So I don't want to leave you. I don't want to leave my wife and daughter. I don't want to leave 
this life, but on the other hand, if I really believe heaven is true, then uh, that should somehow change my thinking, uh, and it has uh, in big ways. But even this morning, I had a lady come up to me in the, in the uh, foyer, and she took my thermos out of my hand and grabbed my hands, and she looked me in the eye, and she said, you know it's not about you. <laughs> she said, this is about Jesus. It's not about you. When you get on that stage, it's not about you. And I went, because as I was out walking this morning, about halfway through my walk, it just went, it's not about you. Oh, yeah, it's about Jesus. That's right. And that's what I really want my attitude to be. And I'm a long way from it because I have days when I'm believing that and other days when I'm terrified and I'm shaking, uh, shaking like a leaf, an old Rich Mullins song. Um, but Jesus has been holding my hand and will continue to hold my hand in those days when I'm believing and in those days when I'm terrified and it's like one of the men in our small group one time, he's probably 75 years old and he's got seven comorbidities. And he said, you know, I don't, I don't fear death. I know where I'm going, but he said, it's the ouchie to get there. <laughs> That's me too, the ouchie to get there. The ouchie. So Jim, we began the service from Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And, and now we're listening to what Paul says about what is that life of wisdom and I thought of you specifically with respect to this text, um, making the most of time for the days are evil. How, how do you make sense of that in light of what you are facing right now? How, how, is, how is your world changed in that respect if you can narrowly confine it to that idea that he's got there? Well, I think um, <clears throat> it's made me much more aware that I don't have much more time. Uh, and I need to take advantage of that time, not just for me, but for the kingdom. And so it's made me more purposeful in conversations, in getting with uh, men for lunch, in the Honduras ministry, in my marriage, in my extended family, uh, uh, healing wounds in the family. I mean, there's just so many implications of it that uh, I'm just, it's forced into my face every day because I take eight pills every day, four in the morning and four at night, and those four pills other than God's grace, without those pills, the doctor said two to five months. And so I'm faced with my mortality at least twice a day. Prayerfully, that's making me more purposeful uh, in the way that I, well, I'll give you an example. We had some folks over for dinner last night, and they told us some of their story, and the Holy Spirit said, pray for them now. And I was like, what? That's a little weird. <laughs> but somebody else had done that to me recently. They said, Jim, can I pray for you now? Sure. So I asked these folks last night, can we pray for you? Yeah. And it was beautiful. But my flesh, of course, didn't want to do that. It felt kind of weird. But if the days are limited and I want my life to be purposeful, then I need to step out in faith. And when the Lord whispers, I need to listen. Somebody gave you a shirt. You've talked about it a couple times. And we'll, I'll end with this one. What, what's the shirt? What does it say? Why does it matter to you? Uh, get busy living or get busy dying. <laughs> it's a quote from Shawshank Redemption uh, when he escapes from the prison. And, uh, you know, there's two ways that we can face our mortality, and we're all facing our mortality. We just don't know when. Uh, we can face it and just fall down on the floor and get busy dying, sit in the corner and rot, or we can make the most of our days prayerfully for Jesus, but also for our families. Uh, for the ministries that God has given to us, get busy living or get busy dying. And we've all got to face that 
every day. And on a silly note, um, you'll notice my belt here. That's the North Carolina Tar Heels. Are they a basketball team? <laughs> <laughs> no comments, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to do that for you. <laughs> Uh, it's funny that you should mention Shawshank. And I wound up in here. Bad luck, I guess. Yeah. Floats around. Gotta land on somebody. It was my turn, that's all. I was in the path of the tornado. Didn't expect that the storm would last as long as it has. You think he'll ever get out of here? Me? Yeah. One day, when I got a long white beard and two or three marbles rolling around upstairs, they let me out. I'll tell you where I'd go. To Hotton Hill. To what? To Hill. To Mexico. A little place on the Pacific Ocean. You know what the Mexicans say about the Pacific? No. They say it has no memory. That's where I want to live the rest of my life. A warm place with no memory. Open up a little hotel, right on the beach, buy some worthless old boat and fix it up new. Take my guests out, charter fishing. Say what to nail. In a place like that, I could use a man that knows how to get things. Whatever mistakes I made, I paid for them and then some. That hotel, that boat, I don't think that's too much to ask. I don't think you ought to be doing this to yourself, Andy. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living, you get busy dying. If you know that story, and maybe you don't, and parents, I would certainly caution you. He does get out. But when I read this passage, when Paul says, making the most of time for the days are evil, I think what he means is that evil is cast around us, and it's always encroaching, and it's like weeds. Wickedness is like weeds. It's always out there to spread and to stifle whatever is it around. And so what I think Paul means is, Use the time that you have to push back against the evil wherever it is, in the boardroom, in the classroom, in the playroom, in your kid's bedroom, push back. And the fascinating thing about that story is, do you know where he pushes back most against the evil? It's within the walls of the prison. He pushes back against the evil 
And then when he's free, he is so free. Jim, I think you're the embodiment of what it means to push back against the evil for the time that you have and we all have. And I think you embody that which we see here. And I'm grateful that you would come and share your story with us. Well, as you know, over the last week, my number one prayer is that Jesus would increase and I would decrease. This isn't about me. It's about offering hope from Jesus to you. And that's the people here and the people that are watching. It's not about me. I'm going to come and I'm going to go. And there have been other people that stood on this stage in the years past who have come and they've gone. And yet Jesus lives on. So can I pray for that? Thanks. So I pray that you, Father, would um, make much of your son uh, through the stories of your servant. And that we might see him more clearly and love him more dearly as a consequence. We ask good things for my friend, for this member of this family. We ask your goodness and mercy to follow him all the days of his life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Jim. The life of wisdom that we place our mind on has an element of time that we have to give our attention to. And the other thing that I might say briefly there about that is what Paul says about the will of the Lord. It's making the most of the time, for the days are evil. But therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, it's not simply just go find your own way. Go follow your own heart. You be you. I mean, those are interesting phrases, and they're, and they're well-intentioned. But Paul is arguing that there is something for you to know, and that is to know the will of the Lord that's a life of wisdom. He's just riffing on what Proverbs 9 says. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. There's all sorts of things you can learn about life that have no reference to the Lord, but only because you blind yourself to it. And I think he's just riffing on what he said earlier about trying to discern what the will of the Lord is. It's not quick. It's not easy. It's not, it's not without assistance. And so if I, if I could just tease out for you, what does it mean to, to try to discern what the will of the Lord is as a, as a function of mindfulness, I think it means you learn, how to, you learn how to receive what God has said. What you have in your hands on your phone or your hard copy of your Bible, nobody had that for, until about 600 years ago. Nobody carried around copies of the Codex. It was just too big, too bulky. And so I, what you and I have, the ability to kind of pick this up and read it at our will, that's new. That's, that's rather novel. But when the psalmist says in Psalm 1, blessed is the one who meditates upon the law of the Lord and his meditations upon day and night, he's talking about a familiarity with what God has said that allows you to really drain out the nourishment from it. You can't meditate on anything that you are not familiar with. And somehow, before we ever had written codexes or electronic versions of it, people People gave their attention to what he had said in such a way that they were so familiar with it that they could really draw out its nourishment. Do you? Is that your thing? How do we find out what the will of the Lord is? We have to learn how to receive what he said. We also have to learn how to pray. Every few years, I feel the urge to pick up a very short book by a German theologian named Helmut Thilicki. It's called... Um, a short exercise for young theologians. 
And he wrote it for people that are just starting seminary. But it's true for it's helpful for anybody. And I will let me just tell you, every one of you in this room is a theologian. You have certain ideas about God, whether you're conscious of them or not, that directed your every step today, and you may just not have known it. Everybody's a theologian. But the one thing he warns in this book, and why I go to it all the time, every few often, every so often, is that he warns you of something that can happen very subtle in the way you think about God. But your thoughts about God shift from the, as he puts it, the second person to the third person. You know grammar, right? Second person, third person. Second person, singular, you. You. Third person, singular, he, she, it. If all of my thoughts about God shift from addressing him as you, as a person, and shift to the, the Lord is like this, he is that, God did this, something has changed, and it's not for the better. God subtly, slowly becomes sort of a specimen under a microscope, uh, an artifact that you unearth with a brush, a, a character in a play. And Philiki is brazen enough to say, do you know who the first character in the Bible is to ever refer to God in the third person? That would be the serpent. Did he really say that if you ate of this tree, what I have to say to you, I have to say to me. You and I have to learn not to let our thoughts of God all enter into the third person. We have to learn how to address him and not feel awkward every time we do. Prayer begets prayer, I heard recently. But to know what the will of the Lord is, it will go there. In stammering, stumbling, incomplete sentences. It's wonderful. He smiles at it as surely as watching a child toddle and fall on their butt. We have to learn to receive it. We have to learn to pray. We also have to learn what it is to be a true member of the body. All sorts of information you get from the Bible. All sorts of wisdom and insight you might glean from learning how to pray. But friends, if... You know, a few weeks ago we talked about much of what you have ever learned was what you saw modeled in front of you. And we also argued that what you learned to desire, you learned to desire by seeing other people desire the same thing. You and I learn what it is to know the will of the Lord by being in some difficult and sometimes wonderful relationships with people that are in this room. I needed people in my life to be not impressed with all my knowledge of the Bible and to say, that's an interesting thought. Now, can I share a little reality with you? You need that too. I still need it. We all need it throughout our lives. You got to learn, know how to receive it, how to pray it, and how to be a member of the body. That's, that's the life that's mindful. What about the wife life that is spiritual? People, you know, talk about being spiritual. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I believe there's some sort of transcendent thing out there. I acknowledge that, but, you know, kind of don't rope me in or any kind of structure or package or framework. And I respect the concern. I respect the idea to have an open mind. That's a virtue. Curiosity is a good thing. But when Paul means by spiritual, he's talking about not just sort of this inner voice, this thing called our conscience, which I think is real. I also think our consciences can be seared, can be warped, can be corrupted, such that what I find to be so amazing and true can actually be as far from the truth as ever. Spirituality is to believe in the Holy Spirit. 
And therefore, he summarizes everything about what it means to be a life of wisdom and spirituality by what he says there in verse 18. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. It's a funny way of introducing the idea of spirituality. Wait a minute. Don't get drunk with wine. What's the problem? Debauchery. Probably not a word you've used recently. In essence, it means this. The more you fill yourself up, the more you drain yourself. You drain yourself of control. You drain yourself of hope. You drain yourself of life. The more you fill up, tank up, lose yourself in it, it's your escape from reality rather than engaging that reality. That's drunkenness. And the more you fill up, the more you lose, the more you train your brain to crave what will not fill, and the more you give up, and then what's in control, the more you do, it's not you. And that's real. And it's touched a lot more people in this room than we'd like to admit, and maybe people in this room in our seats. Paul was talking about a filling that is not an escape and does not drain you. He's talking about being filled with the Spirit, which is a lovely thing that pastors say, and we all nod our heads and go, what the heck is he talking about? Here's the primer in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a gift given to those who have been persuaded that Jesus is true and he's right and that he's for you and that you're beloved. It is the Spirit that acts upon your will to believe that he is real and then to build you up in his goodness. And as Paul said earlier and back in Ephesians 1 and chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is a down payment on what is still yet to come. That is who the Holy Spirit is, to mature us in faith, to remind us of things that we lose sight of. As we said in John chapter 14, Jesus' own words, he's there to bring to remembrance everything that I've said to you, to act upon you. It's not just your own little inner voice. It is something outside of you that operates from within. But when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, you have to, grammar intrudes again. Be filled, not fill yourself with the Spirit. It is a gift. It is something that is acted upon for you, and it is not a one-time-all thing. It is an ongoing thing. And so if I could just kind of come up with a phrase that might be a little bit more understandable about what it means to be filled with the Spirit, it's this. It's a cultivated posture of receptivity to the presence of God. It is learning to still yourself and slow yourself and learn from him and receive that which he has to offer you, that you might understand his goodness and receive his guidance. That's, that's kind of what being filled with the Spirit is. And as soon as I start talking to any crowd about what being filled with the Spirit is, you know, the question is like, do, do signs and wonders happen? And is it, a really, is it a primarily an emotional experience? And, and do people get healed? It's like, you know what? All of those things might happen. But what, what's going on here? Why don't we listen to what Paul has to say here? And, and, and let me just say that in context. Guess where everybody's eyes have been the last three weeks? Here, on Asbury. And for good reason. What is going on? And everybody feels the natural impulse to define it, to explain it, to characterize it. And you have probably seen as many hit pieces as puff pieces. Uh, we want to exaggerate it. Maybe we want to dismiss it. You know what? Um, why don't we ask the question, was the Lord's Spirit at work there 
by looking to see what are the consequences of one being filled with the Spirit. What does Paul say are the consequences of being filled with the Spirit? You follow the four participles that follow, be filled with the Spirit. For one, addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Did you see any of that? I did. Paul says in another letter, teach and admonish one another. Use words through what we learn from the things that we sing to one another as good speech. Um, you've had conversations with people in this room, and you've probably talked to all sorts of things. You know, why is it the first time that UNC and Duke have not been in the top 25 in God knows how long? Or, how do you think of the coffee today? Or, isn't it nice that it stopped being so wet today? Fun stuff. Normal stuff. Ordinary stuff. What is Paul talking about? A mature life of being filled with the Spirit. At some point, your speech starts to borrow from the words that you've been given to encourage, to remind, and maybe even sometimes to confront. That's being filled with the Spirit. Those words come forth. And at the same time, those words come forth to one another. It also says a fruit of the Spirit is singing and making melody to God in your heart. You can fake the address one another part. You can say all those things and be absolutely corrupt when nobody's looking. But when it comes to singing and making melody to the Lord, like that's sort of a moment, an indicator. It is expressing our heart. What does song do? Song, song obviously expresses our ways in, in ways that words just can't. They are something that binds a community together. You ever been to, a, I went to a concert you know, weeks, you've been to concerts before and everybody starts singing and we're all doing this together and we're suddenly all of one mind. Music does that. It liberates us. It, it frees us. It allows us to say things in ways that maybe we felt apprehensive to do so. Sometimes you may wonder, what are they doing up here? What, what is their point? Are they performing? No. They're trying to find that sweet spot of doing something excellence that, that frees us up to be able to express our hearts to God, to find that sweet spot between doing things well so that they're not a spectacle in what they do, but also not trying to stand up here and perform so that you kind of sit there and go, I guess I just was supposed to watch. No, they're here to prompt you. They're here to prompt me because allegedly I need this. I need my heart to be able to speak and sing unto the Lord. And if I'm doing that, it is possible that one fruit of the Spirit, as Paul says, is that we might be grateful always in everything to God in the name of Jesus. I will sing a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. It doesn't mean you don't go through times of tearfulness. It doesn't mean you, go through, you don't go through times of being bewildered. It just means that in your tears and in your bewilderment, it is still possible to praise him with gratitude. And the last thing, when it talks about these participles, he's talking about submitting to one another out of reverence for Jesus. Submitting is not a very popular word, and for understandable reasons. But here he's talking about a deference to one another a yielding to one another for their good. Sometimes at sacrifice and cost to yourself. That's just what submission is. And why? Because we believe that there was one who in order to make us his, died to do so. 
he forgot himself to remember us, to literally reconnect us to who the Lord is and restore us to himself. That's the life of spirituality. Does that sound like something that might have happened at Asbury? I think so. And probably the most poignant thing I heard from a student there at Asbury was what he considered to be the marks of the effects of this moment. And he said, it was marked by an overwhelming peace for a generation marked by anxiety, marked by joy for a generation marked by suicidal ideation, marked by humility for a generation traumatized by the abuse of religious power, and marked by participatory adoration for an age of digital distraction. Preach. That sounds like something that might be real. What's the takeaway? What do we do with this? To answer that, let me just briefly say this. Let me show you what we're up against. Uh, there's a poet that 25 years ago wrote a song, and I'm not really sure what he envisions. I think it's a, it's a song from one friend to another. But in that song, uh, this one friend sings to another. He says this, I saw you just the other day. I watched you walk a little way. You vanished around the corner, and when I got there, you were gone. You might have heard me if I'd called. We, we could have spoken, but I stalled and let the moment slip, and in a moment, it was gone. I saw, you see, but you didn't see me. You were going somewhere. And then the song ends like this. My timing's bad. Your time's been sold, you're looking young, you're feeling old, you're looking straight ahead of you, I'm standing on the side. Your silver spoon is tarnished old, but still, you'll turn it into gold. Ambition's gonna get you there. I hope you like the ride. You were going somewhere. In our day, you could probably update that song, and you could say, you were scrolling somewhere. But that's a, a song from one friend to another, and my question to you, rhetorically speaking, is this. Is this a song that God could sing to you? Are you always going somewhere? If being filled with the Spirit requires a cultivated posture of receptivity to the goodness of God, then I ask you, are you going somewhere? I have a challenge for you then before we come to this table, which is a challenge I lay up on myself too, is for the next 30 days to pray to pray that we would be filled with the Spirit. In those ways, addressing one another, singing and making melody, giving thanks in all circumstances, in submission to one another out of reverence for Jesus. What if, like, what is that going to cost you? Nothing. But what if we pray that for each other? What if we, as you came to this table, prayed for that? What if you, as you went back to your seat, prayed for that. What if you, as you waited for everybody to come forward before we all ate together, prayed for that? I'm, I will not stop you. You got other things on your agenda? That's cool. You got other things to talk about? Awesome. But if you're looking for something to do while we do this, would you pray, starting today, that we would be filled with the Spirit? That's all. That's a life of wisdom in mindfulness and spirituality. Let's pray. So what we need from you is you. And what we need from this table is you. And what we need from each other is you. And what we need from our circumstances is you, uh, no matter how much our circumstances seem to suggest something other than you. So help us now to eat and drink worthily, to examine ourselves, and to remember this body. And that you would bless your people 
as they come to receive the grace that is offered to us in this table. In Jesus' name, amen.